You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, everybody out there in the world, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, a podcast where we talk about paleontology, fossils, evolution, earth history, life history. This is episode 150, and it is once again dinosaur time. Dinosaurs! This episode, we're talking about stegosaurs. Yeah. This is the famous group of armored dinosaurs with the big plates and spikes including Stegosaurus, one of the most famous dinosaurs of all time. A very cool group, a much beloved group of dinosaurs. They're pretty neat. Yeah, they're pretty cool. This episode, we'll get to talk about what Stegosaurs are, what dinosaurs are in the group, what we know about the evolution over time of this group, and we'll zoom in on some of what we know about their lifestyle and a bunch of the big questions surrounding such interesting features as their plates and spikes and their tail weapons. Basically, why are they so weird? What's going on with stegosaurs? <laughs> Just what's the deal with stegosaurs? That's this episode. What's the deal with stegosaurs? Now, we've done tons of dinosaur episodes before. We love coming back to these topics because they are so much fun to discuss. I mentioned Stegosaurus is much studied, much beloved. It is also much requested. <laughs> this is one of our most requested topics, as tends to be the case with dinosaurs. They're pretty popular. This episode was requested by <gasps> Jonathan, Damien, Portuguese Eagle, Simon, Tim, Anna, Brad, Ben, Shift, Orion, and Rob. And that particular Rob is our artist, Rob, who did the logo art and other art for us on our Zazzle store. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Rob. And also everybody else. <laughs> Thanks for the request. So a lot of people want us to do an episode about stegosaurs. And here at the podcast, we deliver. Fine. Uh, twist our arm about it. Hey, before we get into the main episode stuff, we have a couple of announcements, starting with our Patreon. People who want to support the podcast and our science education efforts can do so by supporting us on Patreon. And many people indeed do that right now. Patrons get all sorts of goodies like bonus news, extra access to us, we do live streams, stuff like that. But one of the rewards you can get as a patron is that at a certain level, we will shout your name out on the podcast when you join at that level or above. This episode, we would like to shout at Michelle, Conrad, Saturday, Dromiosauridae, Thomas, and Desert. Thanks, everyone. Welcome. Welcome to the Patreon and to the podcast community. The Baskin Coil. Welcome to the Baskin <laughs> Coil. <laughs> if you'd like to contribute some financial support to us to help us in doing our free science education efforts and all the things that we do, check out our Patreon. You can find it down in the episode description. And speaking of all the things we do, this episode comes out smack in the middle of October. It does. Which means that we are smack in the middle of spooky season. All throughout the month, we are releasing episodes of Speculative Evolution, our annual series where we speculate on the evolution of fictional monsters from pop culture and mythology. This year's theme is Monsters of Dungeons and Dragons. It's been a lot of fun so far. If you've been keeping up, we have already released two episodes in which we evolved Owlbears and Displacer Beasts. Boy, that last one got weird. Yeah, it did. And if you think those were weird, just wait. There are two more episodes coming down the pipe before the end of the month. 
So check those out. Hop on the social media, hop on the Discord. Let us know your thoughts and your experiences. We like hearing from people, especially people with cool ideas or fan art. So absolutely get engaged. Just just make sure you share that fan art if you make it. <laughs> also, after October, of course, comes November. And in the middle of November, we will kick off our end of the year Q&A. Every year we do a big Q&A at the end of the year. And we will put out the submission form for questions in mid-November. It'll be up for a month, and you can submit questions for us to answer on the big Q&A. Keep your eyes and ears out for that. Oh, hey, and one more thing, if you want ways to support us, we are now part of the Audible Creators Program. Audible is a place where you can download and listen to audiobooks, and you can get a 30-day free trial if you go to audibletrial.com slash commondescent. That gets you books, and it supports us here at the podcast. That link is down in the episode description. Since this is a dinosaur-centric episode, I'll shout out Riley Black's The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, which I recently listened to on Audible. Riley is an awesome science communicator who we've mentioned on the podcast before, and her book is kind of like a written version of a Walking with Dinosaurs-style documentary, painting the scenes of the ancient past before, during, and after the extinction at the end of the Cretaceous. I really liked it, so consider that a hearty recommendation from me. Uh, check out The Last Days of the Dinosaurs, and if you want to check it out and use audibletrial.com slash commondescent, everybody wins. <laughs> and that's all the announcements for this episode, which means we can move on to the news. News! Every episode, we like to gather up some news from the world of paleontology and related sciences to keep us all up to date, and also to give us some extra stuff to talk about besides just our main topic. Will, please, news... Well, since you mentioned the end Cretaceous there, and since we're talking about dinosaurs in this episode, I have some news that deals with that impactor, the Chicxulub impactor, but looking at it from the moon. Well, hang on, but that asteroid hit the Earth. Yeah. I'm intrigued. This is research by Tao Long et al. in Science Advances, and the article is by Robert Lee on Space.com. And that article will be linked in the blog post. Indeed. This is research on... Soil samples from the moon brought back by China's Chang'e 5 lunar mission that happened in 2020. That got back in 2020. What they were looking for in these soil samples were beads of glass, silica glass, which are created either from volcanic activity or impacts. Asteroid impacts. Asteroid impacts. When a meteor hits a body, it will... Hit it with a, a meteorite, sir. Yes, true. Well, it's the meteor and then it hits. Shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> when these impact, they hit with such force that they can melt the material and create these little spherical and like teardrop and odd shaped beads of glass. Yeah, the rock itself melts, forms these little droplets, and then recrystallizes. Mm -hmm. And you get these little glass spherules and stuff. Through. Chemical and textural analysis, you can figure out what caused them, whether this was a volcanic melting or impact. And they were looking for impact spherules to try to get kind of a timeline of impacts on the moon. An idea of just what's the history of impacts on the lunar surface. Very cool. They used a number of techniques, microscopic analysis, geological surveys, and numerical modeling. And with this, they were able to get a timeline of just a portion of the 
impacts on the moon. There's over 9,000 craters on the moon. So this is not all of those. No, it gets hit a lot. <laughs> but what they found when they made this sequence is that some of them synced up with impacts on Earth. Some of the impacts on the moon seem to happen at the same or similar times as impacts on the Earth, indicating that at least some of the times Earth's been hit by asteroids, it seems that they were not alone, that they were accompanied by other impactors, some of which hit the moon. Yeah, asteroids will sometimes come in clusters. There have been cases where the Earth will get hit by multiple asteroids at roughly the same time, or the moon will get hit. It makes total sense that if a cluster comes by, some might hit the moon, and some might hit the Earth. And this could be because a larger asteroid broke up on its way to us, or multiple got pulled out by each other's gravity and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. Lots of reasons you can have a shotgun blast of asteroids heading our way. One of the reasons that this is exciting and why I use the segue I did is that one of those impactors seems to date to about 66 million years ago, same date as the Chicxulub impactor, the Incretaceous asteroid that seems to have been the major cause of the extinction of much of life during that time, which seems to indicate that the asteroid that, you know, quote unquote, killed the dinosaurs was accompanied by another one that hit the moon. Was not alone. Yes. Which goes along with other studies that have suggested that the Chicxulub impactor was not a singular event. Yeah, we talked about this recently. It might have been in bonus news on Patreon. I think it I think it was. Of a recent study that found evidence of another crater that might date to about the same time period here on Earth, suggesting that it, there might have been multiple impacts around that time. This seems like it might be another bit of evidence supporting that sort of situation. This research also is just going to help us understand the nature and patterns of asteroid impacts on Earth and the moon, but also just in the inner solar system. Mm -hmm. like just what is kind of the rate and behavior of these objects. And future aims hope to continue to compare the soil samples from this mission to other soil samples from the moon to try to get a more complete look at craters across the lunar surface. Yeah. We're already way past the introduction of this study, but just the fact that we're studying the stratigraphy of soil samples on the moon, very cool. Yeah. And yeah, if we want to understand asteroid impacts here in the inner solar system, the moon is a great place to do it because the moon gets hit all the time, yep. relatively speaking, and the moon's surface is not reshaped anywhere near as much as the Earth's surface, so it retains a lot of that data. Yeah. So it makes total sense that the moon soil is just full of asteroid impact after impact worth of little glass beads. It harkens back to our moon episode and the fact that we are a Earth-Moon unit. Yes. And so if you can learn something about one, it's going to tell you something about the other. Yeah, that was episode 138, by the way, if you want to learn about the moon. Well, since we're on the subject of dinosaurs, my first news is about birds. Specifically bird brains. Oh, that's, you're not supposed to call people that. So we are, uh, once again, we're hearkening back. Birds episode 37, brains episode 121. Uh, we're bringing them together. <laughs> this is research by Louis Schiappi et al. in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. And the article we will link in the blog post is an article on science.org by Tess Juice. Bird brains are famously very complex counter to the statement that you just made about the common 
vernacular use. Which has always made that a super weird phrase to me. <laughs> right, the insult of being a bird brain. Yeah. So, no, no, birds are birds are very brainy. Unless you just mean that they have big eyes and are very jerky in their <laughs> movements. <laughs> bird brains are very complex. They're often compared to mammals. They are distinctly very different from a lot of other reptiles. Possibly this is related to certain bird behaviors, like flight or other complex social behaviors. Birds, of course, are also often notoriously very smart by our human standards. Solving puzzles, playing games, stealing people's windshield wipers, things like that. <laughs> but understanding the evolution of bird brains is tricky. Many of the features we see in modern bird brains, their sort of unique structure are generally thought to be something that evolved relatively recently in our modern bird group, the group that is called Neorniths, which is not all birds, but it is all still living birds. However, there are not many fossils that preserve good bird brain cases from early birds, which would be how we would study brains in early birds. So that has hampered our ability to examine this evolutionary story. But this study presents a really nice bird brain case. Neat. This fossil from the late Cretaceous of Brazil is about one centimeter wide. It is part of the skull of a bird with the brain case preserved in three dimensions. Excellent brain case, which is the part where the brain is stored. It comes from Brazil. It is late Cretaceous, about 80 million years old. And the authors identify it as being an, an antiornith bird. This is a group of Cretaceous birds. They are not modern birds. They are different from any of the birds we have today. They are a totally extinct group that was once very widespread in the Cretaceous, in the skies of the Cretaceous. It used to be the standard bird until they stopped being around. <laughs> this is the first good brain case that has apparently ever been found for this group. Wow. Uh, in fact, the article references, uh, quotes one of the authors saying that when they saw it, we were almost in tears. Yeah, I bet. Like, but, Yeah, this is a really nice one of a kind so far opportunity to look into early bird brain structure. Well, and like uh, brain cases are exciting in general when we find them because that, that's there's a ton we can learn about the shape of a, a animal's brain. But to have the only brain case for a whole group Mm -hmm. That's that's huge. Yeah, actually, it's very small. <laughs> they 3D scanned the brain case to get a really good look at both the outside and inside structure. And they found an interesting combination of traits. The outside, they noted, looks a lot like other non-bird dinosaurs. All right. Yeah. So it has a lot of ancestral features, the kind of features that would have been present in the earliest birds and their cousins. But the inside structure has a lot in common with modern birds, more later evolved features. So to use uh, the technical terms that they use, the brain case, the outside of the skull looks more primitive, so to speak, and the inside looks more derived or more advanced, so to speak. They describe that the brain isn't as flat as we see in other dinosaurs and often reptiles, but it's more curved. Mm -hmm. They describe it as curved like a C with the brainstem underneath, which is similar to what we see in modern birds. And the place where the spine connects to the brain is pointed downwards, not backwards, which again, backwards is what we see in 
other dinosaurs and reptiles down as what we see in modern birds. It also has an inner ear structure that is more like modern birds. So the interior structures are very modern looking in this extinct group of birds. All of this is to say that it seems like this feature, this suite of features that we thought was a modern bird thing, evolved earlier. Yes. Uh, and Antiornithus and Neornithus are modern birds split, right? Their ancestor is estimated to have been around 140 million years ago. So for them to share these features suggests that these these might be pretty early on evolving features of bird brains. Yeah, something that was there before the two lineages split. Yeah, and they inherited it. Now, the, they also point out that some of the features that we see are missing in certain modern birds. So the evolution of this is probably more complicated than that. It might be that some things evolved multiple times or some things were lost. Yes. But at the very least, it suggests that the modern structure of bird brains goes back farther and was more widespread in the past than we previously thought. Well, and this is one of those scenarios that can be very complicated. It could be that it was ancestral, it was there to begin with, and then the lineages split and both took that feature with them. Mm -hmm. It could be that it was evolved separately in the two lineages, convergently, and if it was evolved separately, it could be something that is more recent in modern birds, but happened in the in, in Antiornithus. Yeah. The but, solution to these questions is to find more really nice brain cases of fossil birds. Yes, but this now gives us a clue to keep an eye out yeah. for these features in earlier birds than we might have expected. Yeah. The paper also discusses a bit about the development of the brain, like how it would have developed in a developing bird. Oh, yeah. And the fact that the shape might also have to do with certain changes to the skull or certain changes to the development of birds. There's a whole bunch of cool discussion about not only evolution in birds, but also the individual development and what constraints that puts on the shape of the skull and the brain. So all sorts of cool insights into birds, bird skulls. Very interesting. Well, my next bit of news is also about a one-of-a-kind fossil find that we've not seen before. This is some fossil, what appears to be vomit, at a site where that's never been found before. Oh, vomit where you don't expect it. Yeah. Just, uh, often not a delight. I was about to say, in this case, very exciting. Yeah, we're happy about it. <laughs> this is research by John Foster et al. in Paleos, and the article is by Jennifer Nalawicki in Live Science. This new specimen is from the Morrison formation in utah famous late jurassic formation full of dinosaurs absolutely but this is from one of the plant localities at that for at that formation oh cool it's plant vomit what has been sometimes referred to as the jurassic salad bar <laughs> this area dates to about 164 to 145 million years old and the specimen they found is a cluster of small bones nearly a dozen bone fragments included in it these were not bones they found spread across the rock layer. It was found in one spot, a compact pile that was no more than one third of a square inch. Oh, wow. Itty bitty. Just a tiny little drop. Yes. Initially, they thought it was a single organism, single little animal. Uh, but looking closer, they found it's actually multiple remains, at least. At minimum, a frog and at least one salamander potentially more there. They found femurs of a small frog and small salamander, 
possibly like so small that we're talking about possibly tadpole and potentially the smallest reported salamander specimen from that area. Oh, wow. There's also some vertebrae, some backbones of an unidentified species that they're not sure what it, uh, it goes with. And at least some amount of a matrix of fossilized soft tissues. There is some soft tissue remain among this jumble of bones. Oh, skin or muscle or something to that effect. Yeah, and I didn't find any specification as to what they suspect it might be. Now, the reason it's r- worth mentioning that this area is the Jurassic Salad Bar is that it is a plant locality. It is known for fossilized plant remains, sometimes other organic remains, but typically no animal remains. This is a not a fossil site that typically preserves bones. These are the first bones found here, which makes it very interesting. What, As they analyzed it, chemical analyses as well as features about the preservation suggested that it was a bromolite, so fossilized stomach content of some sort. It does not seem like it was fully digested, which means it's not likely a coprolite, so not poop. Right. Did not make it all the way through. Which suggests that this is a regurgitolite, that it is vomit. Yeah, something thrown up, which has been found before in the fossil record. There are bird pellets in the fossil record that this is not the first time that this has been seen. Precisely, but it is the first time ever for both the Morrison Formation and the Jurassic of North America. Oh, cool. So this is a very rare find for this site and this continent of the, in during this time. Wow, this creature did not know when it threw up that day <laughs> that it was going to be famous. Yeah, it was just having a really bad day. <laughs> now, they don't know what predator it was, you know, since it was eating animals. They say potentially fish, maybe a semi-aquatic mammal or something. Like, they don't know. They don't know what puked it up, but it was probably something small. And they have some notable things of the amphibians found in the vomit. This is the southernmost occurrence of frogs and salamanders in the Morrison Formation. (laughs) And the salamander material is very likely juvenile instead of a new taxon. It's it's notably small, and so they thought it maybe might be something new, but it might it looks like it's probably a juvenile salamander, which is a very rare find. Yeah, so it looks different from all other salamanders, but might not be that it's a new species, just that it's a young salamander, and we don't often get those as opposed to adults. Exactly. Well, the frog does seem like it's probably something new. Oh, it doesn't seem to match, uh, or at least it is yet to be identified. So even the material in the vomit is noteworthy. This is a very cool find because oftentimes we think of coprolites, right, fossil poop or fossil gut contents as being important because they can tell us about the diet of a particular animal. And this is a case where they can't tell us about the diet of a particular animal because we don't know what the animal was that made this thing. But a feature that we've mentioned a few times, I think, previously in the podcast is that gut contents or coprolites can be exceptional sources of fossil preservation. Yes. That they will preserve things that you might not otherwise see elsewhere in an ecosystem. This is an ecosystem that, for whatever reason, isn't preserving a lot of animal remains, but a little pile of vomit is an unusual circumstance, preserving tiny bones, and is giving us potential new species, things we haven't seen before. Like, everything about the bones in this regurgitolite is a record-breaking thing. Yes. New place, new species, new life stage of these groups of animals. 
that's a very fun. It, it almost makes me kind of happy we don't know what the animal is mm-hmm. that threw it up, because then the news would be all about that. Yes, it'd be all about oh, this fish, the fish we're eating. No, it it ends. It gets to be all about the preservation and the things within, which is pretty cool. Well, it's got kind of the same feeling as animals dispersing seeds by eating a fruit and then pooping the seed out later, is that this is a fossil record version. Of yeah. You're dispersing fossils for us to sites we don't usually get them in. Well, I've got one more news, and this one is about a unique, unusual specimen. Oh, How about that? But okay. we are no longer talking about animals. This is algae, and particularly old algae. This is research by Shu Chai et al. in BMC Biology, and in the blog post we will link to a press release on phys.org from the University of Toronto. This study examines five fossilized specimens of algae from the Dunying Formation in South China. These date to the latest Ediacaran, about 541 million years ago. We've talked about the Ediacaran before on the podcast. We did a whole episode, episode 31, all about it. This is the time period right at the end of the Proterozoic, at the end of the big swath of time that is called the Precambrian, before the Cambrian explosion, before the rise of modern ecosystems and modern animals. The Ediacaran is full of all sorts of weird stuff that looks kind of like animals we recognize, but also kind of not like that. And it's this interesting period of time just before life as we know it, so to speak. So a very interesting time period to get anything, really, but particularly these algae specimens. These are all phosphatized, which means the fossil is mineral replacement of cell structures. It gives excellent 3D preservation. They describe that each specimen is about half a millimeter across, each algal sphere, but still preserves all sorts of bumps on the outside of the cell and strands inside that are called siphons. These features that we see in algae are preserved in excellent detail. This allowed them to take detailed x-rays and electron microscopy examinations to explore both the outside and inside structure of these cells. They were able to identify that each of them is indeed a single-celled algae, one spherical cell per specimen, and they identified them as a type of green algae. In particular, a new type of green algae, new genus and species, which they named Protocodium sinensi, and they noted that it has a surprisingly similar structure. They use the term architecture. The interior and exterior, exterior structure is surprisingly similar to modern-day green algae. They related it to Codium, which is a genus that is very widespread today, often invasive. <laughs> and the reason that this is news is because finding a fossil that is ancient algae that is very similar to modern species of algae is exciting to begin with, but finding one in the Ediacaran before the Cambrian explosion back in the Proterozoic is especially cool. It suggests that green algae like this were already relatively modern looking and relatively diverse before the end of the Ediacaran period. So back when we had all these sort of alien ecosystems that we don't quite recognize at that time, there would have been green algae that looked quite a lot like algae that we have today. They point out that this will be very helpful in A, understanding the ecosystems of that time period, which is always nice to have, 
and also understanding the evolution of green algae and their close cousins, land plants. Mm -hmm. Green algae and land plants are closely related, as we Ali told us all about that back in episode 125. But trying to understand exactly where they split from each other or exactly the timing of those evolutionary stages is difficult without nice fossil specimens. These are now available for us to help calibrate our understanding of when those stages in plant and algae evolution took place. And finally, they also point out that now that we have really good fossil specimens, it might help us understand all the other weird round spherical fossils that we get throughout the Proterozoic. There's a bunch of famous, mysterious round fossils from a lot of different fossil sites. Having a really good look at these specimens can now serve as a reference to then look at some of those others and be able to say, oh, these are actually this algae or these are definitely not this algae. Yeah. Well, it's exciting to find anything recognizable in the Ediacaran. It's, it, this is a time period and group of life famous for being unrecognizable, for being things that we don't know where to categorize them. We don't know whether you count as animals or some form of multicellular life that we should already be recognizing. You know, it's been it's gone back and forth on like Dickinsonia and certain ones as to whether or not it's an animal. So finding something that we can go, no, no, for sure green algae mm -hmm. is exciting. Like, that's cool. Well, this has a similar feeling to when we discussed, like back in episode 148, we talked about the idea of the weird Triassic ecosystem, but then there's still flying fish. Yep. Or the age of dinosaurs, but then there's still mammals doing basically the same thing as flying squirrels. Like finding something oddly familiar in an otherwise unusual landscape is pretty cool. This is having an ecosystem that is mostly stuff that we have a hard time even classifying at all. But there's green algae. Yes. There it is. Just like home. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Well, hey, now that we're done with the news, speaking of ancient weird things... This episode, we are talking about stegosaurs, some of the most famous, most exciting, and most bizarre dinosaurs that there are. There are tons of mysterious questions to ask about stegosaurs, and we're going to ask them. Starting after the break, where we'll talk about what the group actually is and move on from there. Stay tuned. One of the main reasons that I think people find dinosaurs so interesting and exciting is because so many of them are just so obviously different from anything we have living today. Like, there's nothing in the world today that is like a Tyrannosaur. No. Nothing's shaped like that. Like, we have birds that walk around that you can be like, all right, I can see the feet. Right. But, but that, nothing no. nothing else that really matches that type nothing, of animal. Nothing else quite has the profile of a Triceratops. Mm -mm. Nothing it looks anything like a, a sauropod, like Brachiosaurus or something. Stegosaurus is super weird. Yeah, that... <laughs> it might have... be one of the best examples of an animal. Just the profile of Stegosaurus is alien. Yes, I was going to say, out of dinosaurs, I think those are the ones that stand out the most to me as a... You look weird. You look weird compared to everything today, but also compared to other dinosaurs. Yeah. And it's gotten a little better. There's the old school reconstructions, the art of stegosaurs. They were shaped like mountains. Yes. 
uh, which they don't look like that anymore. We've put their tails up in the air where they belong. So yep. they look a bit closer to a lot of other dinosaurs, but they still have this bizarre shape to them. They have tall bodies. They're narrow. Mm-hmm. They're tall and narrow, like a like a fish. They've got those big plates all along the back, spikes on the tail, and then a tiny little head up front. Their legs are misproportioned. Yeah. The front legs are way shorter than the back legs. They're just a weird shaped animal. Yes, they, they are, are extremely unique with a whole bunch of parts that are not immediately intuitive as yes. to what they're for. And indeed, there are some of the biggest and longest debates and misconceptions in dinosaur science history applied directly to Stegosaurus. Yeah. But, alas, Stegosaurus is not alone. That is why the title of this episode is Missing That Second You. <laughs> this is not Stegosaurus, this is Stegosaurs. There is a whole group of dinosaurs called the Stegosaurs, the group Stegosauria, the plated dinosaurs, named for their plates, and they all share Stegosaurus-like features. Stegosaurs, broadly speaking, are quadrupedal. They all walk around on four legs, like ankylosaurs, like ceratopsians. Well, the later ceratopsians. <laughs> Stegosaurs are four-legged. They are herbivorous. They have narrow necks with small heads, big, tall bodies, uh, narrow snouts, and short front legs in comparison to their back legs. But the thing that makes Stegosaurs famous is their armor. Yes. They have osteoderms. These are skin bones. These are the armor bones like crocs have, like a lot of lizards have. They have small osteoderms in the skin, especially around the neck and the hips. But most famously, those giant plates and spines along their necks, backs, and tails. These range from big flat plates to cone-shaped spines. And in many of them, they also have spikes sticking out of the shoulders. Yeah, the actual armaments. Mm Mm-hmm. And... Uh, all stegosaurs have two pairs of spikes on their tails, forming an apparatus that is officially kind of mostly known as a thagomizer. <laughs> More on that later. Yeah. And like, and it might be obvious since we have them as fossils, but these are all bony structures. Yes. Like bony plates, bony spikes, bony osteo. It's... Just bones jutting out of these animals. <laughs> yep. And indeed, and we'll again, we'll talk more about this later in the episode, they are all osteoderms. Yeah, which is so weird. They are highly derived skin bones. Very cool. Stegosaurs are mostly found from the middle to late Jurassic period, so the middle-ish of the Mesozoic era. So ranging from, you know, 180 to 140 or so million years ago, and some into the early Cretaceous. They are found on all continents except on Antarctica, so far. <laughs> Maybe they were there, we just haven't found them yet, but they are at least found on all the other continents. Now, we will get more into the sort of lifestyle, the anatomy, what these dinosaurs were doing, but let's take a little tour through Stegosaur evolution. Where do they fit on the dinosaur family tree, and what did their diversity look like over time? Stegosaurs are Ornithischian dinosaurs, which is the same major group that includes the horned dinosaurs, the pachycephalosaurs, the hadrosaurs, and so on. They belong to the broad group called Thyreophora, which are the armored dinosaurs, which are stegosaurs plus ankylosaurs. Which both, in my brain, makes sense that they group together. Like, you're 
two groups of dinosaurs that have gone crazy with armor. Yeah, ankylosaurs we talked about in episode 69. Those are the tank dinosaur, the armored dinosaurs covered in spiky, bumpy armor all over themselves. Big old giant turtle dinosaurs. But then there's also a party that's like, that seems... It seems almost too thematically fitting. Like, <laughs> right. You feel like you were grouped together the same way that video game stuff is grouped together. Right. Well, like early taxonomists <laughs> would have grouped birds and bats. Exactly. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, that doesn't. They just they just fly. That doesn't group them. It's it's like these are the two different builds of armored well, mounts that you could get in a video game. <laughs> and it is. Yeah. So Thyreophorans, this whole group, Stegosaurs and Kylosaurs, plus uh, some early forms. The main thing that they share is their armor, and the two groups have gone different directions with it. The oldest Thyreophorans, the early members of this group, include Scutellosaurus from North America, the early Jurassic. This is a small two-legged dinosaur, probably about a meter and a half long, so like four or five feet long, not very large, uh, with many small osteoderms, those skin bones. Skeletosaurus from early Jurassic England was bigger, 4 meters or so, 12-15 feet, a quadruped, and covered in armor and scutes, looks like an early member of the armored dinosaurs. Emausaurus from early Jurassic Germany is similar. Uh, Very recently, we talked about this in bonus news, researchers identified a dinosaur named Jacopil from the late Cretaceous of Argentina, which might be related to the earliest Thyreophorans, the earliest armored dinosaurs, although there's some debate about that. Yeah, this is a very newly discovered dinosaur, so there will be more research to come. Yeah, like last month, like (laughs) very, very recent. Yeah, brand new. From these early armored dinosaurs, they're split the two main groups, ankylosaurs and stegosaurs. And they really did, like you were saying, these are the two builds. Yeah. Ankylosaurs have osteoderms all over their head, their neck, their shoulders, all around the bodies. Their eyelids. Their <laughs> eyelids in some cases. They often, so many of them have big clubs at the end of their tails. Ankylosaurs have broad snouts and low, wide bodies. Stegosaurs have osteoderms mainly just along the back, along the ridge of the back. They have spiky weapons on their tails. And they have narrow snouts and tall bodies. Yeah. It's just two different shapes of armored dinosaurs. Yes, it is. You're taking the same idea and filling two different lifestyles with that idea. Yes. And they differed in their time. So ankylosaurs were most successful in the Cretaceous period, especially the later Cretaceous. Stegosaurs reached peak diversity much earlier, mostly in the middle to late Jurassic. Which is kind of interesting because that means they had to, like, switch out with each other. And it might have been that ankylosaurs came on the rise because stegosaurs went out, or vice versa. (laughs) The earliest true stegosaurs are known from the Middle Jurassic. So again, back to 180, 170 million years ago or so. From the mid through the late Jurassic, they spread all over the world. The earliest stegosaurs were relatively small. Three to four meters long, right? Ten to fifteen feet proportioned a little bit more like the early Thyreophorans, so they didn't quite have those bizarre proportions like we see in later ones like Stegosaurus. Uh, They were still Stegosaurs, they still had the plates along the back, but they were smaller and a bit more normal looking. Yeah. The early Stegosaurs give rise to the family Stegosauridae, and this is where we start to see a lot of the familiar weird features. 
stegosaurids have those weird short front legs, which gives them that odd curvature to their body. They tend to get bigger. In the late Jurassic, we see multiple groups of stegosaurs make it up to 7 meters long. So now we're in 20 to 25 feet, and some possibly even bigger. I've seen estimates of 8 to 9 meters. So they got big, right? These are similar in size to the largest Triceratops-like dinosaurs and Kylosaurus-like dinosaurs. Many of these stegosaurs, the stegosaurids, have a mixture of spikes and plates. So when we think of stegosaurus, stegosaurus's back has those big, broad, flat plates. Yeah, those almost square or pentagonal plates. Mm -hmm. But most stegosaurids within this major group had a mixture where some of their plates were broad, some were pretty narrow, uh, some were tall, some were short. Uh, And in some cases, some were almost spikes. Yeah. In many cases, they would change. So they might be broad and small at the neck, big and broad toward the middle of the back, and then become spike-shaped as they got farther back and towards the tail. That was one of the coolest things I remember discovering when I was younger. We all knew about Stegosaurus, anyone who read dinosaur books, because it was in every single dinosaur book. And then I finally found one that was like, also, there's like Kentrosaurus and all these other mm-hmm. different plate-shaped and I was like, there's divert, there's varieties that I can pick and yeah. choose from. And I I loved seeing the weird alternative s- shapes to the plates. Yeah. There's all different arrangements. Every species has a different setup of its plates and spines and spikes along its back. Stegosaurids also tend to have shoulder spikes. So these are big, long spikes, again, osteoderms sticking off the shoulders, which we also see in some ankylosaurs. Yes. Uh, again, episode 69. Within the Stegosauridae, there is a smaller group called the Stegosaurinae. There will not be a quiz, but this is the subgroup. Stegosaurinae, which includes Stegosaurus and its close cousins. This is the group that is the familiar shape. These only have plates along the back. No spine, no spikes along the back. They tend to be big, broad plates. They don't have shoulder spikes. Stegosaurus does not have shoulder spikes. And whereas other stegosaurs, the plates are parallel along the back. So there's two rows along the back and they sit side by side in the stegosaurines, stegosaurus and its cousins, they alternate. Yeah. So if you're going down the rows in the other groups, you'll have pairs. One, two, three, each side by side. Two, four, six, eight, et cetera. With Stegosaurus, you can go from left to right, one, two, and zigzags. They yes. alternate as you go down. So if you're looking at Stegosaurus from the side, generally speaking, you can't see through the plates. Yeah, there's not going to be obvious gaps between each pair. Yes, whereas others, they're parallel and there's gaps between. In the Jurassic period, we have fossils of Stegosaurs from all over the world. Again, not Antarctica, but everywhere else. And there's also stegosaur footprints from a bunch of different parts of the world. Makes sense. In the early Cretaceous, so after the Jurassic-Cretaceous transition, which we talked about in episode 146, in the early Cretaceous, stegosaurs are mostly gone. We have mostly fragmentary remains. There are a handful of identified genera. Mongolostegus from Mongolia, Paranthodon from South Africa, Werhosaurus from China, But that's about it. Their diversity really dramatically drops in the early Cretaceous. And by the end of the early Cretaceous, stegosaurs are gone. 
which is they, they don't make it to the end Cretaceous like they were not there to be wiped out by the asteroid mm-hmm. impact and subsequent ecological collapse stegosaurs were gone before the late Cretaceous set in which is you know not unusual there were tons of dinosaurs that went extinct before or before the end of the Cretaceous or before the Cretaceous oh yeah like, and that Jurassic into the Cretaceous transition as we talked about we see a lot of changing of the guard of dinosaur ecosystems. I think the reason it sometimes feels weird to find out that Stegosaurus didn't even make it into the late Cretaceous, let alone to the end of the Cretaceous, is because it's often grouped with those famous in Cretaceous dinosaurs, like T-Rex and Triceratops. Yeah. And so you see it put in among those ranks, and so you think that it was often, it must have been interacting with them, but it didn't even cross paths with them. Well, and especially since most of the other famous Jurassic dinosaurs, even the groups that didn't make it into the Cretaceous or late Cretaceous, like Brachiosaurs and Diplodocus and Allosaurs, those did not make it, but there are dinosaurs that look a lot like them Yes, through to the end of the Cretaceous. There are still long-necked dinosaurs. There are still big meat-eaters like T-Rex stegosaurs are an entire very recognizable body shape of dinosaur that just did not make it to the end yeah it it feels like it is missing from the cretaceous yeah because there's nothing shaped like we have ankylosaurs now but you're not shaped like a stegosaur and yeah like you said there's nothing that fills that gap at all yeah so stegosaurs would have lived alongside brachiosaurs allosaurs ceratosaurs but the horned dinosaurs like Ceratopsians, the armored dinosaurs, the ankylosaurs, tyrannosaurs, pachycephalosaurs, the dome-headed dinosaurs, those were all after the stegosaurs dwindled and disappeared. So stegosaurs really are an earlier group of dinosaurs compared to uh, most of the other really famous ones. Absolutely. Now, stegosaurs are a whole uh, broad group. I will mention some of the members, some of the diversity but first, Stegosaurus. Woo. This is this is the famous one. Not only is it the one that gave the group its name, it's also one of the largest of the Stegosaurs. It is the most famous of the Stegosaurs. It is probably one of the top five, maybe ten, most famous dinosaurs in the world. I mean, if you need to put it into perspective, it was one of the dinosaurs that they decided to be one of the characters in Land Before Time. Like... Right. <laughs> you had you had some of the big dinosaur groups in that movie. Well, it's the dinosaur that fought T-Rex in Fantasia. Exactly. That's a that's a big deal. That's totally wrong, but it's a big deal. Yeah. Stegosaurus's agent references that every time. So there are many different species, many different genera of plated dinosaurs. Stegosaurus itself, whose name means the the roofed lizard, <laughs> a saurus, saur, you know, reptile roofed uh there's a reason for that because of all the shingles yes <laughs> yes stegosaurus lived in the late jurassic between roughly 155 to 145 million years ago it is found in the united states and portugal there are three identified species uh generally there have been some others that have been suggested but there are three species of stegosaurus stegosaurus stenops stegosaurus ungulatus and Stegosaurus sulcatus. Oh, I think that's more species than I realized there mm-hmm. were. Neat. Uh, and that has gone back and forth, and there may be some Stegosaur researchers who, if they hear this, will disagree and say, <laughs> actually, wait! Yep. But g- generally speaking, those are the three that uh, are, are used. Well, like, like most of the famous dinosaurs, they are put under more scrutiny 
for this mm-hmm. kind of stuff than other groups. So there's going to be more kibitzing as to the exact grouping. Stegosaurus lived, again, alongside in the same habitats as Diplodocus, Brachiosaurus, Allosaurus, Ceratosaurus. Remember that Allosaurus one. That's going to come up again later. Mm-hmm. These are among the largest of the Stegosaurs, up to seven meters long, maybe longer. Estimates of four to five tons. So getting up towards elephant size today. Several stegosaur specimens were first found and identified way back in the 1870s into the 1880s. These are some of the earliest well-known dinosaurs. That's around the same time that Apatosaurus and Brontosaurus were first named. That is quite a bit before T-Rex was ever discovered. Stegosaurus itself was officially named in 1887. Now there are about 80 individual stegosaurus specimens known. The best skeleton is Sophie the Stegosaurus, discovered in Wyoming in 2003, now at the Natural History Museum in London. Sophie is a young adult, six meters long, three meters tall, and almost complete. Uh, The number I found was about 85% of the skeleton is represented. Wow, that's awesome. And I now need webcomics of Sophie and Sue having museum adventures. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) And also, oh, man, what did they name? Was it Maximo, the the Patagotitan? Oh, right. At the AM&H? Yeah. Oh, we just need all the dinosaur mascots to get together. (laughs) Stegosaurus's plates, the big bony plates along the back. It has 17 of them. The largest sit over the hips. They're smaller by the neck, smaller further down the tail. Right over the hips are the biggest. And the biggest can be up to 60 centimeters or 24 inches, so two feet, two feet wide and two feet tall. Yeah, these are almost perfect diamond shapes. Yeah. Like they are, they're surprisingly oddly geometric and they're huge. (laughs) Yep. Those plates have been the subject of a lot of changing uh, perspectives. Originally, famed paleontologist Othniel Charles Marsh interpreted that the plates would have lied flat on the back. Yes. Like shingles. Hence the name roof lizard. That makes sense. And it makes sense from like a, you have this big shield. Yeah. How do you use shields? You lay them flat against you. Yeah, armor, obviously. (laughs) Like that's, what else would you be doing with it? Later, he recognized that they stand upright on the back. And again, at first, he interpreted them as being a single row. Oh, yeah. Just all in one line. I forgot about that. Then later as parallel rows. Two rows, but side by side, uh, which we see in a lot of old artwork. Yep. So old Charles, our night art, shows the plates side by side. Uh, In King Kong, Mm -hmm. the Stegosaurus in the movie has the plates side by side. Well, and I know I had some dinosaur books as a kid that had them in a single row that were just very old artwork depictions and then i had bunches where they were side by side Uh, like a lot of dinosaurs stegosaurus was also traditionally shown with its tail dragging on the ground until we lifted it up later on when we realized that was wrong eventually we got good enough skeletons of stegosaurus to show us how the plates were actually arranged so we got articulated skeletons so skeletons with the bones at least partially in place And that's how we learned that their plates are alternating. Yeah. From very well-preserved skeletons. So now we know, yeah, two rows of plates, alternating pattern, big diamond-shaped plates from the neck to uh, partly down the tail. 
Stegosaurus is not the only dinosaur that looked like this, nor the only stegosaur of this size. Hesperosaurus, also from late Jurassic North America, similar in size. Its spines, the, the plates on the back, are long and low. Yes. Instead of being tall and, and more diamond-shaped. Like, like little mohawks. <laughs> yes. There are a bunch of other similarly sized stegosaurs. Dacentrurus from late Jurassic Europe. Kentrosaurus from late Jurassic Tanzania. That's my favorite. Twajangosaurus from late Jurassic China. All of those are outside of Stegosaurinae. So they have narrower plates, plates and spikes, and they all have shoulder spikes. Which is something that, uh, when I learned about that, was an, an interesting realization. Because the first time you see, like, Kentrosaurus with these big, like, anime-style shoulder spikes coming off. Like, just mm-hmm. ridiculously looking, but awesome. It seems weird. It's like that, whoa. Right, that's not what Stegosaurus looks like. Yeah, that's an upgrade if I've ever seen, like, wow. <laughs> But then you realize, no, that's actually pretty common within a lot of them. Yeah. Stegosaurus lost that trait. That they're the weirdo, mm-hmm. and they have the alternating plates, which is also something that stands out. Yes. So the famous one, once again, like we've made points with tons of other famous examples, is not always the representative for the group. Yeah, Stegosaurus is weird. Yes. So there were a bunch of Stegosaurs, both within and without the shoulder spike categories. Uh, that were similar sizes to Stegosaurus. There were also small ones. Huayangosaurus and Chungkingosaurus, both from China, were only 3 to 4 meters long, right, 10 to 15 feet, but still with plates and spines and spikes and such. And then one other Stegosaur that I want to make special note of, just because it's weird, is a Stegosaur named Miragaya. Miragaya was found in the late Jurassic of Portugal, so same place and time that we find some Stegosaurus. First identified back in 2009, a second specimen was found in 2019, much more recently. Miragaya is about six meters long, about two tons. Not bad for a stegosaur, but what makes it stand out is its long neck. Oh, yes! This is a long-necked stegosaur. Now, it's not like super long, but compared to other stegosaurs, it has this long neck. And as we've discussed in the past, there are two ways to make a long neck. One is to add more vertebrae. And the other is to just make the vertebrae longer. Miragaya added more vertebrae to a grand total of 17 neck vertebrae, which makes Miragaya's neck, in terms of the number of vertebrae, longer than any other non-bird dinosaur, including most sauropods. Like more number of... More number of vertebrae. It is tied with the sauropods, the long-necked dinosaurs... That have the most vertebrae in their necks. That's that's bizarre for a number of reasons. The two that jump out to me is that I was not expecting you to say more vertebrae. I was like, surely... Yeah. Added more vertebrae. A group that has not been specializing in long necks would just stretch the vertebrae. Like, that's what we see in most vertebrates today. And it looks like Miragaya might have done some of that. Mm-hmm. But mostly it looks like they were adding more neck verts. So, yeah, that was... That's unexpected. At least that seems like the the less obvious answer to me. So that was expi- surprising. And that you've done it to such a degree to match and surpass yeah. other dinosaurs. The famous dinosaurs. The ones that are famous for having long necks. Yeah, that's insane. And what's super cool is that the way Miragaya has elongated its neck through evolution 
matches what we see in long neck dinosaurs in sauropods like the same pattern same techniques okay gotcha so lengthening some of the vertebrae possibly adding some of the vertebrae potentially but the main one that isn't immediately obvious is converting some of the torso vertebrae (laughs) so in an animal's body you have neck vertebrae the spine of the neck And then around the time you get to the shoulders, they change to trunk vertebrae, the vertebrae of the back. Yes. Miragaya and sauropod dinosaurs both converted the front back vertebrae into neck vertebrae. So it incorporated them into the neck. You don't have a long neck. You just have low shoulders. You have a short torso. (laughs) You've just scrunched your shoulders back further. And this all combined led the authors who originally described Miragaya to call it a sauropod mimic stegosaur. It had a long neck, possibly to help with feeding, right? Maybe it was feeding on higher plants, but also maybe as a display feature that it's, this is a stegosaur that evolved convergent features with sauropod dinosaurs. So like weird, man, what would have happened had you made it through the Cretaceous and just kept evolving in that How trajectory? Weird would Stegosaurs have gotten? Yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> odd. I love this group so much because of all their weird diversity. This is a weird way to describe it. But of all the dinosaurs, they're one of the ones I always like to see the most in Dinotopia interacting with human style things of like people riding among the plates. And Mm -hmm. I love it. They're so weird and cool looking. They're just such an odd shaped dinosaur. Yeah. All of them with their their variety of back plating, apparently some with weirdly long necks, but still tiny heads. Yes. Yeah. There's, there's this incredible amount of diversity in this group and they're all bizarre. Yep. Now, all of this weirdness raises the obvious questions of what they were doing with their weirdly shaped bodies. And there's been actually a ton of discussion about what stegosaurs were doing. Specifically, how do we explain their unusual anatomy, their unusual features? So after the break, we will go through and discuss what we know about stegosaur lifestyles and what we think might be the way that we explain all their weird stuff. (laughs) Stay tuned. Stegosaur skeletons tend to be relatively rare and mostly incomplete. So we just don't have as good a fossil record of stegosaurs as we do of some other more common dinosaurs. This might be a reflection of their habitat or their habits. It could be that they were just not common in their ecosystems, Mm -hmm. that they Mm -hmm. weren't abundant animals. Or it could be that they were living in certain habitats or certain lifestyles that just meant they didn't get fossilized very often. Stegosaurs are also rarely found in groups fossilized. So a lot of dinosaurs are famously found in mass death assemblages, where a lot of them seem to have died at the same time. That is not found very often with stegosaurs. So some have suggested that that might be an indication that they weren't living in big groups. Which is notable for herbivores. Yeah, a lot of dinosaurs were herding, right? Big sauropods, uh, horned dinosaurs, hadrosaurs, these were herd-living dinosaurs. And part of how we know that is that we find groups of them fossilized together. Stegosaurs, also their cousins, the ankylosaurs, 
generally are not found in group assemblages. So again, possibly a reflection of them being more solitary. That just made my brain go on like a little romp trying to think of solitary herbivores today. And the first one it came upon was moose. <laughs> I think of tapers. Tapers is also really tapers good. Tapers tend to be more solitary. But moose makes my brain happy because I went, I feel like that is a very apt comparison. Yeah, <laughs> although the next thing on my list to mention does not match with moose. Oh. Stegosaurs are interpreted as not very fast. Yes, yeah, no, that's... <laughs> because their misproportioned legs <laughs> would not be great for a lot of moving. Moose are not not very fast. They yeah. are they are quite speedy animals. They are athletic. <laughs> they are they are surprisingly I'd much rather be chased by a stegosaurus than a moose. Agreed. Just huh. Cuz at least if a stegosaurus is coming at me, the dangerous part is facing the other way. That's what I was about to say. Their spiky ends are on the opposite. <laughs> yeah. So, so I yeah, be chased by stegosaurus. Yes, absolutely. Please. <laughs> so, if you ever have to choose, everyone. That's our recommendation. Choose Stegosaurus. Uh, the Common Descent podcast should not be used as medical advice. <laughs> In terms of diet, Stegosaurs, because they tend to have low-slung heads, their heads are held relatively low uh, compared to their bodies. So often they're interpreted as eating low-growing plants. Ferns, mosses, uh, fallen fruit I've seen mentioned. They might have been... I don't want to use the word scavenging, but kind of scavenging yeah. fruit off the ground. Stegosaurs also have relatively simple peg-like teeth, typically. In the Ceratopsians episode, episode 87, we talked about how dinosaurs like Triceratops tend to have these batteries, these very complex batteries of teeth. Hadrosaur dinosaurs also had that. They're famous for that. Absolutely. They are, you know, alongside mammals for tooth complexity. Stegosaurs don't have that. They seem to have a much less specialized diet. They also have very narrow snouts. So it's possible they were very selective feeders. Yeah. As opposed to ankylosaurs that had big, broad lawnmower snouts and sometimes are interpreted as just scooping up whatever they could find. It's Which is one of those where you immediately want to say they were grazing on, like, animals in a field today would be. Sure, sure. But they wouldn't have had grass-filled fields. Nope, not in the <laughs> Jurassic. Which is extra weird. <laughs> Stegosaurs are often suggested to have had a turtle-like beak at the front of their mouth, similar to Triceratops. But as far as diet goes, we're mostly going off of the anatomy, the teeth, the mouth shape, because apparently, according to my, my sources, we don't have coprolites okay. of stegosaurs. We also haven't found gastroliths, stomach stones associated with stegosaurs, which have been found with a lot of other dinosaurs. So we don't have a lot of data about what they were actually doing inside their digestive tracts. Yeah, the lack of stomachs, you know, effectively gizzard stones. They're mm -hmm. using, you know, animals like that use those to grind up food is extra surprising with their simple teeth. If your teeth aren't, if they're peg-like, they're not going to be great for chewing. Right. So how were you breaking up? Your food. I mean, Especially maybe they, if you're huge and yes. you need to eat and process a lot of food. Maybe they just had some extreme fermentation guts mm -hmm. like cows have, where it's just we're, our guts are just giant vats of acid. Yep. Just to let the plants break down slowly over time. It's also worth noting that, like I said, stegosaurs are relatively rare yeah. and often incomplete. So it's possible we just haven't found gastroliths with yes. them. So that could just be that we're missing them in the fossil record. Uh, it would make sense, though, if they if they were selective, that maybe they are not 
they're eating the things that they can digest very right. well. They're going after very soft plants yeah. or soft fruits and stuff. It could be. Uh, the, or high energy, like yes. really high energy, but harder to find, but easier to digest foods. Yeah. The ideal foods. Uh, I mm-hmm. always picture the way they showed it in Walking with Dinosaurs, where it was just picking off bits of lichen and moss, like very yeah. specific eating style that always comes to mind, which yeah, interesting. Odd. Yes. Yeah, they're they're mysterious. Mm-hmm. Speaking of mysteries about Stegosaurus, I would like to spend the rest of the episode <laughs> talking about three major subjects that have been the focus of debate and controversy and misunderstanding about Stegosaurus. The big questions. And these are going to regard Stegosaur brains, Stegosaur armor, and Stegosaur tails. Which is like, what are the things that are mysterious about Stegosaurs? The things that make them Stegosaurs. (laughs) Yeah, from the front to the back. Let's start with brains, because this is a famous feature of Stegosaurs. Stegosaurus, specifically Stegosaurus, is famous. This is in a lot of the dinosaur books. It's mentioned in documentaries. Stegosaurus had a tiny brain. According to my references, it was only about 60 cubic centimeters, which is about 10% the size of a cow's brain, which is especially weird considering that Stegosaurus weighed three to four or more tons. This is a big animal with a very, very small brain. There's multiple cows with not multiple cows worth of brain. (laughs) Yes. Uh, You will often hear that it, it is referred to as the size of a walnut. But I found a quote, I think this was in a, this was an article about Stegosaurus, a quote from paleontologist Ken Carpenter, who says, actually, its brain had the size and shape of a bent hot dog. (laughs) (laughs) So tiny and weird shaped. (laughs) Now, this has given rise, their tiny brain has given rise to a couple of famous misconceptions. One, that they were dumb. Yep. That tiny brain meant that they were, must have been unintelligent dinosaurs. We've brought this up previously on the podcast. This has also been levied at other dinosaurs. Brain size does not correlate one-to-one with intelligence. You can't say it has a tiny brain, therefore it must have been unintelligent. Yeah, just an automata that was just walking and eating. This is also said about the long-necked dinosaurs like Brachiosaurus. It is totally likely that there were certain functions that Stegosaurus's brain wouldn't or couldn't do compared to mammals or even some other dinosaurs and birds. But just because it has a small brain for its body size doesn't mean it was a dumb animal. They were perfectly capable. They were extremely diverse and successful for tens of millions of years. Clearly, they were doing something right. And this comes up with animals today all the time that like crocs have tiny brains. They don't Mm -hmm. have a big brain, but they can still learn. They can still remember. They can be trained. They can recognize individuals. They can become more efficient hunters over their lifespan. They may not be solving, like, Stegosaurus probably wouldn't have been solving puzzles or mazes. Mm -hmm. But I'm sure it would have been perfectly complex in its behavior. Right. So we can't say whether or not Stegosaurus were geniuses, but they wouldn't have been big dummies. No. The other big misconception that comes out of Stegosaurus's tiny brain case is the myth of the butt brain. That that little hot dog brain is just not enough <laughs> for a full stegosaurus. This is, To this day, this is still, I see this come up a lot. Yes. The idea that stegosaurus, and often sometimes other dinosaurs, had a second brain by their hips. Yep. 
the butt brain. It's not scientists don't call it the butt brain. That is a mocking term. Yes. <laughs> uh, this is not true. It is not true that dinosaurs had a second brain farther back in the body. Uh, it simply isn't. But let's dive into the story. This originates back in the 1880s. Marsh, again, famous American paleontologist, noticed that in the sacral vertebrae, that's the spine near the hips, in Stegosaurus and also Camarasaurus, which is a, a sauropod, a long-necked dinosaur, there is this canal in those vertebrae that is particularly large, notably larger than the brain case. Okay. So he suggested a posterior brain case, a second brain, or at least a cluster of nerves mm -hmm. that would have sat by the hips to coordinate the tail and the back legs, or possibly to speed up the signal. Yeah. To act as a... A, a, a booster. A booster, yeah, exactly. The logic being that maybe their bodies were so big and their brains so small that they needed a second command center in the back to just keep the whole body basically functioning. Which, like, that logic, I absolutely can follow that thought process. Mm -hmm. And kudos to there at least being evidence in the bone that leaned you that way. Yes. Someone didn't just look at that tiny brain and go, what that? obviously that wouldn't be enough. Yeah. You'd need two of those to even run half of this. Yeah. There was an anatomical basis for the, for the hypothesis. Uh, this is wrong. Yeah. Many dinosaurs and living animals have an expansion of the spinal cord near the, the limbs. There tends to be greater nervous tissue there, possibly to help coordinate signals to the limbs, possibly involved in various behaviors and locomotions. Uh, this is a pretty common thing. We see it in modern animals. It's just extra nervous tissue. It's not a second brain. It's yeah. not a major cluster of central nerve nervous system. It is more wiring to reach out to that part of the body, not more computing right. going on there. Now, it is notable that in stegosaurs and sauropods, that canal in that part of the body is bigger than in other dinosaurs. And we don't know why. The top hypothesis for this might be that they might have a... Uh, we see something similar in some birds called the glycogen body, which is a t batch of tissue in the hips that stores glycogen, which is rich in energy. Oh, okay. As just an energy store. Uh, that might be... It might be something similar in stegosaurs and sauropods. This is made further mysterious by the fact that we don't fully understand what the glycogen body does in birds. <laughs> uh, it might have something to do with nutrition. It might be something else. So stegosaurs and sauropods have a mysterious gap in their hip vertebrae that looks kind of like the structure in birds, but the structure in birds is also mysterious. Yes. So uh, we are several layers of not actually knowing what this big gap in the back of the body is about. <laughs> Which could sound like supporting, like, well, if you don't know, maybe do you it's know, a butt brain. How do you know it's not a butt brain? <laughs> and there's just no evidence nor need for there to be a butt brain. Yes, it, that that doesn't make sense with what we know about other dinosaurs and other living animals. That that's a real stretch. Well, it is not to use a very scientific term parsimonious yes the most parsimonious explanation the most logical is that it is similar to things we see in other animals that they didn't both have some strange one-of-a-kind butt brain structure that they wouldn't need especially if other animals with small brains and large bodies 
don't show that kind of feature. Precisely. Like, A, that would mean that these groups of vertebrates, you know, bony animals, have something that no other group of vertebrates has, Mm -hmm. which would be very, very notable. And it would mean that they have it, even though whales don't have that. Right. Like... If you're, if the logic is that you're having two brains to control a large body, then why do the largest animals on the planet not have anything like the logic just doesn't, it makes sense when you first hear it. Mm -hmm. But when you actually look at the wider tree of animal life, it doesn't actually hold much water. So there is no evidence for the butt brain, but there is more to be investigated in the butthole region of stegosaurs. Moving on to the next, and really just the biggest topic of discussion for Stegosaurs, the armor. Yes. The plates. This is a fa- this is like an ask a, a group of first graders kind of question. What were the plates of Stegosaurs for? What were they doing with this armor? And there's just all sorts of ideas that have been thrown out about this. Oh yeah, no, if you asked a group of first graders, you'd probably have them shout back, actual hypotheses that have yes. been suggested throughout <laughs> the history of these dinosaurs. So, the armor of stegosaurs, the plates of stegosaurs, uh, some are big and broad, some are short and narrow, some are spike-shaped. What they actually are, incidentally, is, so osteoderms, if you think of a crocodilian, the back of a croc is covered in this osteoderm armor, and each osteoderm itself, each skin bone, is a relatively flat plate of bone that tends to be square or oval or rectangular shaped. And there is a ridge that goes down the middle of it, a keel. We see that similar structure in a lot of lizard osteoderms, flat with a raised keel, a raised ridge through the center of it. You see that in ankylosaur osteoderms. That's just a common way for osteoderms to form. Yeah, well, it's a good armor shape Mm -hmm. of it's going to deflect stuff and it's going to act as a good defensive surface. Stegosaur plates and spines are osteoderms where the ridge, the keel, is, to use another scientific term, hypertrophied. (laughs) Extremely large. Yeah. The plate is the keel of the osteoderm that has just grown immense in its size. This is like when you're messing with those character creators that let you adjust every single aspect of the character's (laughs) face. And it's like, if you just keep adding to the eyebrow section, you can end up having a shelf Right. Like a baseball cap coming off the front of your face. That's They just kept increasing that keel and stretching it until now they could make it into whatever shape they wanted. Yes. These uh, plate spines keels were likely covered in sheaths of keratin. So we've talked about this in plenty of other episodes. Triceratops horns. In episode 140, we talked about how uh, bovids like bison and cows and sheep have a core of bone in their horns, and then it is covered by an outer sheath of keratin. Horned dinosaur horns are thought to have been like this. Ankylosaur scutes are thought to have been covered in keratin. Stegosaur plates probably were covered in an outer coat of keratin that might have given them a little bit of extra length. Yeah, this is, it's uh, like a turtle shell, where Mm -hmm. the turtle shell is bone, but you're not seeing the bone when you look at a turtle shell. There's a keratin scutes over the top of it. There was a report in 2010 of a sheath-like covering on a plate of Hesperosaurus, one of the stegosaurs. So some evidence potentially for it. Now, the plates are fixed. So there has been in the past some suggestion that they might have been movable to some degree. 
but most likely our evidence suggests that they were just, they just sat up there. They didn't move or anything. They were fixed, rigid structures. The big question is what were they doing with this? Why? Well, and, and this is one of the big, because there are so many dinosaurs that have features that are weird, but we can still find something today. Like Triceratops has horns sticking out of its face and they're weird, but we have rhinos. We have chameleons and other lizards that have horns in their face. They have the big crests Triceratops does, but we have some dino, uh, some living animals that have features that are kind of like that. Stegosaur plates are bizarre. Just big, flat, bony walls growing out of their backs, which makes it really difficult for us to try to find a comparison and say, oh, clearly they were doing this. Yeah, obviously. So there have been a bunch of different hypotheses over the years. I'm going to start with one that's wrong. In 1920, writer and paleontology enthusiast W.H. Ballou wrote a report in which he suggested that the function of stegosaur plates was for use in gliding. <laughs> and I quote, crude, oh, I should, I'll say this in like a old timey British accent. Crude aeroplane or glider as the stegosaur was, the, prin the principle of all flight was there in the parallel rows of flaps upon his back. Certainly he was the factory in which the first bird was built. Oh my goodness. Delightful. How, like... So wrong. Uh, uh, how, <laughs> <laughs> how wrong can you be? <laughs> uh, apparently this idea caught on because in Edgar Rice Burroughs' Tarzan at the Earth's Core, uh, the book featured a flying stegosaur using its tail as a rudder. Now I want to see some. Now I want to see speculative uh, f fan art, paleo art, of oh, it exists with just massive <laughs> plates, just these huge thin now, plates. If you go back a couple episodes to episode 148 and learn about all the different ways that animals have found to glide, by the end of the episode, you should have plenty of evidence to convince you that Stegosaurus was not using its two foot tall plates to carry its four or five ton body through the air. These wouldn't have even been good for parachuting. <laughs> no, these would not. These were not. And also they stood upright. Yeah, no. These they are, didn't move. Yeah, this is an, like an inverted umbrella. This isn't going to help you at all. So uh, that's wrong, but it's hilarious and I wanted to mention it. So let's move on to some serious hypotheses that scientists have put forth. Uh, one is defense. Mm -hmm. Were the, like Marsh originally suggested uh, of them laying flat, even sticking up, could these have been a defensive structure? Like ankylosaurs and ankylosaurs, they are clearly building armor across the back for defense. This is possible that yes. they, they form some defensive capability, particularly the ones that have spikes coming out of the shoulders. You could see this being somewhat defensive. But this has been questioned for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, they're not quite as sturdy as you'd expect them to be. Uh, they're rather spongy on the inside. They're not solid, hard plates all the way through. But also, they only cover the ridge of the back. Yes. Which leaves the flanks completely exposed. The sides of the body are totally open to attack. So you'd think that if these had evolved to protect the animal, if that was their selective pressure driving the evolution of these plates, that they would cover more of the body. Yes. Uh, unless there was some weird predator that only attacked from the top. I remember even as a kid, I would read my dino books and they'd be like, 
potentially these were acting as defense. And then I'd look at the picture of Stegosaurus and go, no. Right. (laughs) I do, I do remember seeing one suggestion. I don't know that this has gained a lot of traction because again, this has a similar issue, but the suggestion that they might have been up there to deter parasitic birds or, or pterosaurs or smaller dinosaurs from (laughs) perching on their back and just like feeding on them like ox peckers. It's it's like the spikes. It's like the spike. Yeah, exactly. To to deter pigeons (laughs) from landing on buildings. (laughs) This is if you don't want any, uh, uh, pterosaur droppings in your property, you need to get some stegosaurs, some stegosaur spikes and plates up on your back. (laughs) So defense, again, it's possible that they served some defensive function, but that, doesn't seem to have to make sense as the primary driver of the evolution of these plates. It 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 just seems like at least not as armor, like mm-hmm. actual armor. Like maybe defensive if it was a I look unpalatable. Like I look mm-hmm. spiky, I look I you don't want to put me in your mouth. I'm covered in right. sharp edges. Don't bite this. Yeah, like just don't mess with Do this. Do not eat. That I could see. You know, if it's just I don't look fun to mess with Mm -hmm. and I look big because I've added two feet to me, but as actual physical defense, you know, to deflect an attack, it just doesn't seem practical in its shape. Yeah. Structurally, it evidently isn't. Nope. They're not that sturdy. So it doesn't seem to be in the right place on the body. No. So defense, maybe another major suggestion. And this is one that you will hear very, very commonly is regulating body temperature. This is a very popular one uh, that gets talked about quite a bit, that these big flat plates on Stegosaurus might have been good for collecting heat, right? Stand out in the sun and just soak up a bunch of heat or radiating heat. If you pump a lot of blood through it when you're really warm, you can dissipate the heat into the air and cool off like elephants do with their ears. Yeah, very thin surface has a lot of surface area to it. Yes. There have been some models that suggest that they the plates would have been good at dissipating heat. Uh, some have pointed the, uh, at the fact that there are grooves in the bony plates that might be where uh, blood vessels yeah. were running through them, which would be good for moving heat around. Apparently, there are even similar features found in gator osteoderms. There are indeed. That have been suggested as possibly moving heat through the osteoderm for some thermoregulatory function. Yeah, it's thought that that's one of the reasons they might be so efficient at heating up as big reptiles, Mm -hmm. that they're able to collect solar energy quicker and more efficiently by pumping blood over these bony solar panels. Yeah, yeah. So it's been suggested that Stegosaur, yeah, that they were big solar panels growing along the back. This has been debated. Yep. This has gone back and forth. So some have pointed out that those grooves in the plates don't quite match what we'd expect to see from that kind of blood vessel, that kind of what's called vascularization, that pattern of blood vessels. Uh, but instead they match uh, what might be growth features. Oh. It's just a function of how the osteoderms grow. We see similar things in uh, ankylosaurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although if, if crocs are doing it, then maybe ankylosaurs are doing the same thermoregulatory thing. Others have pointed out that an, another possible counter argument to the idea that they're used for regulating body temperature is that in stegosaurus that seems to make sense with its big broad flat plates but there's tons of variety in stegosaur plate shapes yeah some of them are really short some of them are very narrow a lot of them are just spines just spiky which would not be anywhere near as good 
add collecting or dissipating heat. And ancestrally, they didn't have those big plates. Right. So that doesn't that couldn't have been the driver for forming these back plates. Right. So that, again, if that was the main driving force, if that was the selective pressure for the evolution of these plates, you'd expect to see broad, flat plates across all or most stegosaurs. Yeah. Now, uh, uh, counter to that, some have pointed out maybe Stegosaurus was just weird. Yeah, maybe it was doing this. It was doing something odd. This is something we've mentioned before on the podcast, that often when we ask these questions, it's easy to forget that there were tons of different species of Stegosaurs over tens of millions of years. It is very possible that some of them were doing things that others weren't. Yeah. Well, it's like if you ask, are sharks filter feeders? Well, generally, no. Right. Except for a few Except of them. Except for the ones that are. <laughs> <laughs> so it seems that stegosaur plates and spines, at the very least, probably had the potential to be helpful with regulating body temperature. And I've seen this compared to the horns of bovids. Oh, uh, yeah. Bison, cattle, sheep, uh, antelope, things like that. Uh, and I don't remember if we mentioned this in episode 140, that the horns of those animals today have been seen to help them regulate body temperature. Yes. Because they can dissipate heat or collect heat. So they they are potentially helpful with that, but that is clearly not the main function of those body parts. Yeah, That's not <laughs> the driver of their evolution. You don't make your solar panel sharp <laughs> and, right. and spiky. So in stegosaurs, it's been suggested that being good for regulating body temperature might have been a handy side effect, like defense. Like these might have been good for defense, but they might they probably weren't mainly evolving for that. They might have been helpful for regulating body temperature, but they probably weren't mainly for that. At least in many stegosaurs, maybe they were in some. Yeah, it's absolutely one of those where if you have this feature that has a dual purpose. And then you find yourself in a weird environment. Mm -hmm. That lineage could absolutely go, well, our selection is going to start leaning toward the temperature regulation because that's what we need to survive. Yes. So it switches priorities. Yeah. So you could have some like stegosaurs that maybe are doing it weird. They're prioritizing what is a secondary feature for others. So defense, maybe. Thermoregulation, maybe to some degree. Flight, no. <laughs> uh, which leaves us with the last major hypothesis and Probably the one that is at the very least easiest to justify. Yeah. Which is that they were for display. It's, it's the t it's the go-to explanation for when you find a weird, seemingly non-functional structure. Yep. <laughs> is that they were using them to display. Uh, we see this a lot with exaggerated features in animals. In the horns and antlers episode, we talked about this extensively. Yep. We talked about this with the horns and crests of ceratopsians, the horn dinosaurs. This comes up quite a lot. Display. Display can be useful for spotting other members of your species over long distances. Uh, it can be useful for sexual display, for uh, displaying to mates. As you pointed out, uh, display can be useful for deterring threats yeah so looking bigger than you are or looking spikier than you are i just i'm look more intimidating i i look unusual mm -hmm. i throw you off your game there has been some evidence that has looked at the tissue structure of the bony plates that has suggested they might be growing faster after maturity oh yeah and if that's the case 
something that is useful for adults more so than young. Often is, uh, things that are useful in sexual display and mating displays. <laughs> if it kicks in at puberty, there's a reason for it. Mm-hmm. There was a study in 2015 of Hesperosaurus, which is very close to Stegosaurus and has been suggested apparently by some to be Stegosaurus. Oh, okay. Uh, that found one population in Montana that shows two different plate styles, uh, wide and oval and tall and narrow. And it has been suggested as possibly sexual dimorphism, males versus females. Which, if these are display, that you'd expect that to happen with some species. Yep. But this has been questioned, uh, as with basically every suggestion of sexual dimorphism in dinosaurs. It might not be quite as clear a signal as we think, and we don't see obvious signs of dimorphism in the plates in other species of stegosaurs. Although, again, others have pointed out that there might have been dimorphism, differences between males and females, not in the shape and structure of the plates, but in the soft tissue or the color, in the things that we don't see in the fossils. Yes, exactly. But like a lot of the other wacky features in dinosaurs, the plates and spines and spikes were probably serving some sort of display function. Uh, We did a whole episode about sexual selection, episode 63, where we talked about how evolution tends to run away with features that help animals have more babies. That you get a feedback loop, that I get a feature Mm -hmm. that makes my mates want to mate with me, which selects for that feature, which makes more mates want to mate with them, which selects for that feature, and you get peacock tails. Yes. (laughs) You get peacock tails, and you get big old antlers, and potentially stegosaur plates. (laughs) You get a stegosaurus. You get a stegosaurus. And this would also fit with the reality that basically every species or genus of stegosaur has a somewhat different arrangement of plates. Yes. We see that with horned animals. We see that with birds and their feathers and their coloring. Each species tends to be somewhat different because they're displaying to their own species. Yeah, I don't want to overlap with another species. I only want my own species to find this interesting. And... In a case like this, there is no denying that even from the perspective of a completely uninterested human being, those are some impressive plates and spikes. I mean, I, I pay attention. I, I'm looking at Stegosaurus. <laughs> right? Stegosaurus walks up, I'm looking in that direction. Oh, someone do that with the meme of the guy walking with his girlfriend. <laughs> yes! Oh, I love it. <laughs> so the plates of Stegosaurus, possibly some secondary defensive or temperature regulation feature probably mostly about display well and i remember i even saw a thing referencing i think those grooves and the potential vascularization the blood flow Mm -hmm. and it's like if they have blood flow they could blush into the plate and that actually they did that in the walking with dinosaurs live show yeah that went around they had their robot stegosaurs blush and the the plates would Turn red, turn yeah. bright red. And if you had patterns in the scoot, in the keratin over the plate, you could have a bland-looking plate, suddenly a red pattern shows up yeah. as you flush blood into it, which we see tons of animals do. Right. Now, again, that we don't know that they did that because that pattern of blood vessels has been questioned as exactly. to whether or not that's actually what it is. Yeah. But, yeah, there could certainly have been coloration. We know dinosaurs had all sorts of wacky colors going on. Absolutely. And if you have a... Sh- crazy structure like this for some sort of display either competition between others of your kind or to attract others of your kind those are going to get wacky 
Yes. That that's just what happens in animals when we see those features yeah. show up. Episode 63 again. They get weird. There is one more feature of Stegosaurs that we must devote some time to. It is the feature at the end of uh, the episode and uh, also the feature at the end of the Stegosaur. Uh and because we would be there would be riots. Yes, no. Stegosaurs are famous for a unique structure on their tail which has come to be called a thagomizer. <laughs> a thagomizer is two pairs of spikes sticking out at the end of the tail. So the end of the tail is rather stiffened and then two spikes off to one side and two spikes off to the other. Traditionally, and by traditionally, like what all my, my toys, my stegosaur toys as a kid had the spikes sticking upwards. Yes. But most likely it is thought these days that they stuck to the side. Which is one of those updates. This was another one of those. As a kid, <laughs> they'd be like, they use their tail for defense. And then I'd look at the tail with the spikes sticking upward, opposite the swinging direction that I'd expect. Mm-hmm. I go, okay, book. <laughs> I, I'm just a kid. I don't know better. And then later on, they're like, actually, they're probably this way. Like, okay, thank you. Yeah, that makes it. Now, <laughs> uh, you were not quite as right as you would think, actually, as a little kid. We'll get to that in a second. Interesting. But yes, they stuck out to the side. Uh, the name Thagomizer, we have to explain this because it's a ridiculous name and its origin is great. <laughs> the term Thagomizer was not first developed by paleontologists. It originates in a Farside comic strip from 1982, uh, Farside by, by cartoonist Gary Larson. The comic strip in question is a single panel and it features a caveman lecturing other cavemen and pointing at an image on, I guess, the projector screen yep. <laughs> of the back end of a stegosaur with the tail. And the caveman is saying, now this end is called the Thagomizer after the late Thag Simmons, <laughs> which is very funny. Uh, cavemen didn't live with stegosaurs. That's ridiculous, Gary. But funny joke. And it introduced the term Thagomizer. This was picked up by paleontologists over time. Yes. And has since gone on to appear in books documentaries, and scientific papers. Yep. That's what it's called now. Yep. <laughs> a cartoonist came up with a silly joke, and now that is a technical term in paleontology. <laughs> it came up with a comic. All the paleontologists read that comic, agreed it was hilarious. Yeah. And went, well, I can't think of a better word for it. <laughs> I would have retired as a cartoonist. I would have said that. I did it. That's that. I would have become a paleontologist. It's one of my favorite <laughs> jargon terms in all of paleontology. It's great, and it and it works. It does the job so well because what? There's no other group for us to use this no, no. term with. Yeah, th this is a one of a kind. Only this group has thagomizers. It's a thagomizer. <laughs> uh, here's a thing that you will enjoy that I bet you didn't know. The term has also snuck its way into the field of mathematics. <gasps> In the last several years, I have noted, uh, this was mentioned, I think, on the Wikipedia page, uh, and I followed the links to two different mathematics papers that have used the term thagomizer graph <laughs> for a certain type of graph that forms a shape that looks like the tail of a stegosaurus. It's, it's spikes. <laughs> yeah, and it's got two spikes sticking off of each side. <laughs> and they call it a thagomizer graph. <laughs> Mathematic. This was in papers and in math papers. Mathematicians have borrowed the term from paleontologists who borrowed the term from cartoons. Who knows where this term will be headed next? Oh, thanks, Thag. <laughs> Your sacrifice. Way to go, Thag. Yes. <laughs> Your sacrifice. You live on in our hearts. <laughs> 
I love it so much. So the Thagomizer. This structure of stegosaurs is far less controversial. It is very obvious what this structure is for. This is a tail weapon. Yep. The cousins of stegosaurs, ankylosaurs, also often had tail weapons. The big clubs on the ankylosaur, not the notosaurs, but the ankylosaur tails. This is a thing for swinging your big strong reptile tail around and deterring predators or competitors. Or at least it seems obvious. It seems like that would be the obvious use. But of course, we don't like to assume all that much in paleontology. We want to find evidence. You have what looks like a medieval (laughs) weapon on your tail, but just because we recognize the shape doesn't yeah. mean that's what you were Maybe using Maybe you were for. picking fruit with it or something weird. <laughs> it was also brightly colored and just another yes. part of your display. <laughs> it just blushed. Uh, so there have been some studies into, all right, can we figure out exactly how they might have used this? There were a couple of studies in 2011 to 2012 that studied Kentrosaurus, which is the African Jurassic Stegosaur. Yeah. That specifically were looking at the range of motion in the tail. So looking at how the bones in the tail articulate with each other, evidence of the soft tissue, they created models to try to determine how much movement could you actually get out of this tail. They found that it would have had some up and down movement, that it could have swung that tail, as they put it, up to three meters high. Okay. So 10 feet high, which I mean, these are big animals to begin with, and lots of left and right motion. The way it was mentioned in one of the articles about this is that if Kentrosaurus wanted to, it could have stabbed itself in the side. Yes. It could have swung its tail all the way around and poked itself right in the side of the body. The model suggested that the tip of the tail could move up to 40 meters per second or more, which would have been great for slashing or stabbing. Mm-hmm. And they found that the muscles and the projections for the muscles, so the, the parts of the bones that stick out to anchor the muscles were huge near the hips, which you would expect for big muscles for swinging, but also all the way down to the tip of the tail. Okay. Which might have given them both power and precision. Yes. That they might have had actually a lot of flexibility in how they moved the tail. Yeah, because in like a lot of ankylosaur tails, their tail is basically a rod. Very thickened at the end and, and stiff. stiff down the length of the tail. So then you're just needing muscles at the base to swing this handle. Mm-hmm. But if you have muscles all the way down, you can flex it. <laughs> now you're thinking more like a elephant trunk where you have control yeah. down the length. So there's some evidence that they might have had quite a bit of flexibility in the tails. Also, those same studies noted that the neck of Kentrosaurus seems to be flexible enough that it should be able to look behind it <laughs> to keep an eye on what it's swinging its tail at. Yes! So these studies showed that not only does the tail seem like a weapon, but at least in Kentrosaurus, they seem to have the anatomy to use the tail like a weapon. Now, this is evidence that they could have used the tail that way. Yep. But there is a big difference between could and did. Uh, This has also come up with Stegosaurus. Uh, There's another big debate that we won't go into too much detail here, that Stegosaurus might have reared up on their hind legs. Yes. Big hind legs, short front legs. A lot of scientists have suggested, well, maybe they were standing up every now and then. And this is another one of those where this has kind of gone back and forth on could they do that? Like, were they capable of standing up on their back legs? And then if they are, did they do that? Yes. Because a lot of animals are capable of doing things that they don't typically do. Well, like, dogs can walk on their hind legs. Right. 
you can train a dog to walk around on its hind legs. Absolutely. If a dog loses its front legs, <laughs> yes. it can still get around. But that's not a that's behavior not, of dogs. Yes, that's not something dogs do. That's something right. that could happen. So the same thing with the tails. We have evidence that they could have been used that way. But we, what we'd really like to see is evidence that they did use them that way. Yeah. And wouldn't you know it, we do. Oh, yay. Uh, the first line of evidence is that there are injuries in stegosaurs. So there was a 2001 study that found multiple specimens of stegosaurus where the tail spikes showed evidence of traumatic injury. Oh, okay, yeah. That they got hurt on the spikes, which seems to support the suggestion that they were crashing them into things. And the second line of evidence is injuries in allosaurs. Yep. <laughs> allosaurs were some of the reigning theropod dinosaurs, the big meat eaters of the late Jurassic, most famously Allosaurus. Uh, these were big, almost T-Rex-sized meat-eating dinosaurs. They lived alongside Stegosaurus, as well as Diplodocus and Brachiosaurus and the other late Jurassic folks. Several Allosaur fossils have been found with injuries that seem to match Thagomizer spikes. Yes! Here's a couple of examples. There's one from Utah that is a tail vertebra, so it's an Allosaurus tail bone, with a puncture in it that seems to match the size and shape of the tip of a Thagomizer spike. And indeed, the paper that uh, described that puncture wound noted that uh, there was evidence of healing. So it was punctured, but then it the, the bone healed afterwards. But it healed around the puncture wound, but there wasn't evidence of healing inside the wound. Like the wound itself in the bone didn't close up. The bone didn't grow inside the puncture wound. Yeah. Uh, Will, can you think of a reason why... It might not have healed on the inside. Boy, it sure sounds like something was in the way yeah. <laughs> of so it healing. They suggested that it might have broken off the tip of the spike and left it in there. Yes. Just, uh, <laughs> uh, but That's one way to get a piercing. But there's another one. Uh, and this one. Oh, oh boy. This is a Allosaurus fossil from Wyoming that has a cone-shaped wound that matches the shape of a thagomizer spike through the lower part of the pelvis with evidence of infection and lack of evidence of healing that suggests that this injury might have gotten infected and led to the death of this animal. Yeah. There is an article that we will link in the blog post that talks about this, the title of which is something to the effect of Allosaurus died of taking a stegosaur tail to the crotch. Yeah, which that, that is you <laughs> not where you want a thagomizer to be. I feel like we most of us would. <laughs> oh, so a spike just straight through the pelvis. Yeah. Bah, that was a bad day for an allosaurus. Well, and I just picture that I just picture stegosaurs like like a, a horse to where horse will just be there doing something. Someone does something the horse it doesn't like and it just <laughs> kicks. Yeah, I just. I don't, I can aim it if I need to, but if I, I'm just going to kick and if I happen to hit you, that's your problem now. Well, and with a horse and the stegosaur feels very similar where it's like, if you annoy me, I'm going to swing this part of this, my body around and you might die. Yeah. Yep. That might just kill you. Exactly. Like I'm just, my reflex is going to go left and right. All right. Are you still here? <laughs> <laughs> now, interestingly, uh, this has been pointed out 
that what's odd about this is the angle of the spike seems to have gone in an upward trajectory. Okay. Which might be evidence that the stegosaur was able to twist the tip of the tail so that it could swing the spikes upward if it wanted to. So it could swing them side to side, but it could twist the tip of the tail to move the spikes more upward potentially which would have made those upward facing spikes more more feasible yeah okay so earlier when you were like wow you can't attack with no they might have actually had some more control that it wasn't just a swiping like back and forth yeah that you could actually aim the tips where you wanted them to go yeah so they might have had more fine motor control in order to get this angle yeah cool Uh, It has also been noted, and this is just a fun little side note, that this also seems to be evidence of active hunting in Allosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) Because why else would you be that close to a Stegosaur Thagomizer? That is not where you want to be unless you're hoping to get something out of it. Yep. (laughs) Man, that's awesome. So Stegosaurs, uh, truly bizarre, mysterious, impressive, uh, rather intimidating. Very cool dinosaurs. Well, and just like, you know, we mentioned that they didn't seem to travel in groups, at least as far as the way they're fossilized. Mm-hmm. So if they were these solitary, just picturing that, like, you're out in the, the, the wilderness of the Jurassic and it's there's herds of dinosaurs going around. And there's the pre- and then there's just the one stegosaur that's in this region. Yep. Surrounded I, by no one. Yeah, and ju- no one messes with Steve. Well, and it, it does kind of make me think of rhinos. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Like, ri- rhinos feel very much this way, where they're not very social. They mostly stick to themselves, and if you get too close, you just might get a spike through your body. Yeah, you just that just might be your last day of making a mistake. <laughs> yeah. It's just just big, powerful well-armed, and given a wide berth yes. by all of the animals that know better <laughs> in the vicinity. Well, and that's also one of the reasons that, like, the backplates as armor, it it makes sense if they're not armored, because you have a very effective defensive weapon. Mm-hmm. Like, ankylosaurs had, ar- yeah. had both, so ankylosaurs it's not that you double up. couldn't have both, but you don't need those to be armor. Well, and it also seems to fit if the tails were very flexible, Mm -hmm. potentially more so than an ankylosaur tail. Maybe that helps to make up for the fact that you're not as well armored on the rest of your body. Yes, that you've just got this really effective weapon that you Mm -hmm. are good at wielding. So, yeah, we just you don't mess with these things because they're going to hit you with that. Yeah, I I like the suggestion that stegosaur, that thagomizers were a finesse weapon. Yes, right. (laughs) Exactly. Like that. They are going to find you. It's this yeah, is a this, flailing. This weapon. is a heat-seeking yes. thagomizer. Yes. This is coming right for you. <laughs> Which it's I also going to find the last part of your body that you want these spikes in. <laughs> That's right where they're going. <laughs> they they <laughs> find your weak spot. But I do like that idea of if they were really good at it. Like you see some animals with stuff like that where they're just very accurate with what they do. Like like mm-hmm. I think of like cats catching stuff with their paws. Yeah. Like how did how. How did you catch that midair? Because they're really good at that. Because I'm a cat. Because I'm a cat. That's what I do. I would love if stegosaurs were that way. Towards Yeah, if you mess with them, that tail just goes whoomp. Oh, yeah. Right to where you are. Stegosaurs are the best there is at what they do. And what they do isn't very nice. (laughs) Is thagomize. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I I told uh, today, actually, earlier today, because I was thinking about it. I told that story of the allosaurus uh, with the pelvic wound mm-hmm. to our friend Laura from episode 84. You all remember Laura. 
Uh, and that Laura's comment was, oh, he got thagomized. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what a superhero stegosaurus would be called. The thagomizer. The thagomizer. <laughs> oh, I love it. All right. Comics people, <laughs> artists out there, please uh, give us the thagomizer. Well, that's about the, the end of our discussion. We have reached the end. The yes. end. The, the end. Uh, we're going to wrap up talking about stegosaurs. This has been another dinosaur episode. Uh, there are plenty of dinosaurs we haven't discussed yet. So if we have not yet talked about your favorite group of dinosaurs, let us know. We'll yeah. put your request on the list. Either request it or keep requesting it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Some people are very adamant and they are they're waiting patiently. <laughs> but there is one more thing we have to do before we wrap up the episode, and that is our patron question. Every episode, we like to answer a question submitted by our patrons on Patreon. One of the rewards that patrons get at a certain level is that they can submit these questions for us to answer at the end of the episode. Will question. Our question is from Richard, who asks, Can a past food web be recreated? And if so, how is this done? That is an excellent question. Absolutely. So food webs, or to use the scientific term, uh, we'll talk about trophic relationships. Which just means what's eating what, who's yeah. eating who. When we think of a food web today, we're, you know, right, we've got your producers, which are your plants, and then your consumers, your primary consumers, your secondary consumers, your herbivores, your carnivores. When it comes to the fossil record and fossil ecosystems, the food web, the trophic relationships, are often one of those cases of this is what seems likely or possible, but there's rarely good evidence that that actually happened. Yeah, we can track modern day food webs by either watching it happen of mm -hmm. like oh wow that thing just put that thing in its mouth and it didn't come out or by checking stomach contents yes so we can actually go and say yep there's a grasshopper in here it ate a grasshopper bingo add the link to the food web so for fossils i'm going to use two different fossil deposits as an example i'll start with the gray fossil site at gray we will often just make a good guess at what was eating what we have alligators yep and we have frogs and fish and turtles alligators today eat frogs and fish and turtles they are well situated to do that it makes perfect sense to assume that that's what they were doing yeah this is just that's a normal croc thing that's a normal gator thing it would be yeah. weird if they weren't eating these things our tapers and rhinos we have evidence from the chemistry of the teeth that they were browsers so we know they were eating leafy plants we don't know which leafy plants from that analysis, but we know they were eating leafy plants, so we can say, yeah, they were browsing off the trees and shrubs. Every now and then, we can get direct evidence. So, again, sticking with gray as an example, we have at least one turtle shell with alligator tooth marks in it. Yeah, we do. That suggests that at least one time, one alligator bit one turtle. <laughs> we have one alligator fossil that had smaller alligator bones in its gut region. Yeah. <laughs> We have one taper specimen that had partially digested hickory seeds in its gut region. So those are direct examples. That animal ate this thing. Yes. Or at least bit that thing. So sometimes in fossil sites you can get, all right, this ate that. Yep. And that's a definite part of our food web. And there are some places where you will find more regular stomach contents or something like that. Yes. And indeed, that brings me to my other example for this which is the Jehol biota in China. The Jehol biota is a variety of fossil sites across two different formations uh, from the Cretaceous of China. These formations are famous for really well-preserved fossil remains. 
with feathers on the birds and other dinosaurs, with gut contents, with skin impressions, just really great fossils. Yeah, these are where a lot of those news-capturing recent spines come from. Yes. Many of the fossils and the Jehol uh, biota have been found with gut contents, things preserved within the gut. A 2019 study looked at all of the fossils that had been studied from these formations and found 20 different trophic interactions recorded. Various dinosaurs, including Microraptor, Anchiornis, and Cenoceropteryx, were documented with gut contents including birds, lizards, small mammals, and fish. Several birds were documented with seeds in their guts. One large theropod dinosaur, Cenocalioptorix, was documented with smaller dinosaurs in its gut. These, plus some others, that paper put together an ancient food web. Here is here are the levels of these were eating these and these were eating these, and this is all based on actual fossil evidence. Now, that's still an incomplete record. Absolutely. Right? That's only 20 interactions. A lot of animals have diets that vary quite a bit, but that paper actually includes a figure that is a fossil food web. Fair. And it's super cool. That's that's really, really neat. So to answer the question, uh, there are a variety of different degrees to which we can guess, hypothesize, infer the food web of a fossil ecosystem. We are always missing information. It is always incomplete. But sometimes we get some really good data for it. And I think it's worth noting that today it is hard to get a complete image of a food web for an environment. Oh, yeah. Because, like, what all does a bear eat? It would take us the length of an episode to go through all the different things that bears could eat. Yeah. Because they're super omnivorous and they're really clever at getting new foods. So you have food webs where we know generally who's eating who, but then every now and then they'll go, oh, I didn't know that coyotes ate that or that crows would make a meal of that. Mm -hmm. That's the first time we've documented that. That is a new link in the food web we weren't aware of. Yeah. That happens constantly. So a food web is an inexact measure to begin with. Yes. And if so. food changes, you know, if some food becomes more rare or more common, mm -hmm. suddenly someone goes, well, I'm going to start eating that. Absolutely. Thank you for that question, Richard. That was a, a wonderful thought-provoking question. Yeah. Thank you to all of our patrons who support us and help us to continue running the podcast and doing our science educational endeavors. Thank you to those who requested this episode. Thank you to all of those who listened to this episode. That means you. <laughs> As always, there will be a blog post after this episode. Link in the episode description. The post includes pictures. So, oh, pictures. Go look at pictures of Stegosaurus. <laughs> as well as links to a bunch of the research that we talked about, to a bunch of articles for more information. Check that out if you want to dive deeper. You can interact with us in all the ways you find in the episode description, social media. Join our Discord. Send us your requests for future episode topics. It is the middle of October when this episode comes out, which means we are halfway through spooky. Yeah. Spookulative evolution. This year we are evolving monsters from Dungeons and Dragons. By the time this episode comes out, we will have released the first two episodes, which means you can listen to us speculatively evolving owl bears and displacer beasts. Yeah, two down, two to go. Two to go. Check out spooky. Also, feel free to join the Discord where we will be having lots of cool spooky discussions going on. Also, as a reminder, November's coming up, which means we'll be putting out the end of the year Q&A question submission form partway through November. So keep your ears and eyes out for that as well. 
So there's a lot going on. We hope that you're enjoying all of our content. Let us know. Reach out to us. Talk to us. Send us mail and messages and all that kind of stuff. We release episodes every fortnight. We will be back in two weeks for episode 151 about something else that we're going to talk about. Until then, watch out for Thagomizers. Yeah, don't get thagomized. Don't get thagomized. Wear protective gear. <laughs> <laughs> Put on your anti-thagomizer spray. You know, I hear that. Oh no, that would that would be the downfall of the thagomizer. Yes. <laughs> yes. Anti-thagomizer spray and protective gear. <laughs> well, I hear that it's uh, if you're in thagomizer territory, you're supposed to make more noise so well, they you, hear you, wanna, you coming. You want to look bigger. Yeah, you're supposed to wave your arms. Right, but don't Thag- don't run downhill. No, no. And don't climb a tree. Thagomizers <laughs> can climb trees. They'll just come right up there and get you. <laughs> don't play dead. <laughs> uh, thagomizers are always getting into garbage cans. It's a real it's a real problem. <gasps> Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.